And before we read it together, it's good to pray and ask for God's help in understanding what we're going to come to. So let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, that you have preserved it, and indeed through preserving it, given us a sure testimony of who you are, of what you have done for us, and what you promise for all who put their faith and trust in you. And we ask that today, as we read it and as we think about it together, you would give us help in understanding what it means and what difference it should make for our lives. This we pray, asking for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So James chapter 4 from verse 7. This is just off the back of a, a time when James has been highlighting judgment that will come on rich oppressors uh, earlier in the chapter. He says then from verse 7, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Amen. This is God's word. Well, it, it doesn't take much to recognize that in this life, everyone faces suffering of different kinds. Phil has helpfully prayed earlier on, uh, highlighting one or two of the situations that people tend to experience, whether it's physical illness, personal grief, loss of various kinds, emotional, mental difficulty, uh, the, the, dealing with uh, catastrophes and calamities. It's right, Don Carson was right when he said... Live long enough and you will suffer. He's not been pessimistic. He's been realistic. And when suffering enters your door in these various kinds, when we're facing disappointment, unexpected disappointment, the question I think is begged of all of us, where do we look for hope? Where do you turn when you're in a situation that you never thought you would be in? Or when you're in a situation where you feel utterly incapable of altering. Well, this on screen. Uh, these are the words of a band called REM. Uh, and they wrote a song called Everybody Hurts. Does anyone know it? I'm not going to ask you to sing it. You can put your hand up. I think this song really captures for us the sense of the world, of how the world seeks to deal with suffering. It says, when the day is long and the night, and the night is yours alone, when you think you've had too much of this life, in other words, you're suffering, hang on. What's their consolation? What's the comfort? Don't let yourself go, because everybody cries. Everybody hurts. 
sometimes. Now, without doubt, we find some consolation, some consolation in the fact that we have a solidarity with other people who experience suffering. We're not alone in our suffering. But is it really much of a comfort to you in your suffering, knowing that other people are suffering the way you're suffering? It just doesn't sound very comforting to me. When I look back on the difficult and turbulent time that I had as an 8 to 14 year old with the experience of a father who was an alcoholic, who loved a bottle more than his family, the, the watching before my teenage eyes, a family being ripped apart. It's no consolation to me at all that other people are going through the same thing. How does that advice sit with you? Many of you, I look out and I see faces of people who are going through difficult times and people who have gone through difficult times and I ask, what, how does this sit with you, this advice of the world? How would it sit with the recipients of James who, even from the off in chapter 1, James has said they're facing trials that they need to endure. It seems like through the thread of the letter there has been that the, the people are not liking their Christianity. People don't like the fact that they have turned from their idols and turned from their former way of life, turned to a new way of life in following the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they're facing the brunt of persecution because of that. It was common in those days. People were ostracized. James has already hinted in chapter 2 that they're being dragged before authorities under false condemnation, false judgment, even being trying to make them deny the name of the Lord Jesus Christ whom they're now following. And even as we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 5, there's a hint in there particularly of these rich oppressors who are dragging them into court, oppressing them, falsely accusing them, even to the point of taking innocent lies. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. How would... Everybody hurts sometimes. Act as consolation for them. But what does the Bible say? What does James have to say to strengthen and help these suffering believers? Well, in our text today, he reminds them of the central hope. One of the primary focus points of the New Testament. A day that creation... The church and indeed the spirit of God are groaning for with longing and yearning. Even with words that, uh, with groanings that words cannot express. A day when sin, its curse and its effects are fully and finally removed. When sickness and suffering disappear. When tears are wiped away from every eye. A day that is marked by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming back. And that's what strengthens those whose wounds are raw, whose pain is real and overwhelming. That's what stops people who are being thrown into prison for their faith or beaten up because of their beliefs. That's what stops them retaliating and seeking vengeance in the face of crushing persecution. Jesus is coming back. How does that help us? How does that help the people that James is writing to? Because when we look to the Lord's coming, we are reminded afresh, reminded again, this is not 
all there is, this world. This world, with its present difficulties and present disappointments, is not our final address. That even when we, if we trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, are in his presence at that future point in eternity with him, these times are, by, uh, by Paul's estimation in Romans chapter 8, momentary, light afflictions. He's not been insensitive to the reality of the suffering. He had wounds which testified to the the pain of the suffering that he experienced. No, he is just saying this time, this life, these sufferings will not be worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us when Christ returns. This is not our final address. This is not all there is. Therefore, James is saying, be patient. Remain strong in heart. That's James's call for us today. If I was summing it up in a sentence, I would say it's this. Let the coming of Jesus encourage you to be patient and steadfast in your suffering as you wait for him. And I want us to walk through this text just looking at two things. The two things on screen here. Patience. The call to patience. Wait without grumbling. He's coming to judge. In verses 7 to 9. And perseverance. Stand firm without giving up. He's coming with compassion. Let's look at the first point then. Patience. Wait patiently for him. Look at verse 7 with me. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Be patient. Are you a patient person? I don't know about you, but I I find it really hard being patient in everyday circumstances, never mind in hard and difficult circumstances. I mean, I'm the kind of guy that stops short of the checkouts at Tesco's and makes a momentary assessment of the length of each queue, the amount in people's baskets, and I make my choice in the back of the... There are some of you who are very like me, I can tell you're laughing. Yeah, that's what we do too. And like me, you also experience that thing where you're standing there and the queue next to you goes down and then you get impatient, don't you? And then the lady in front of you uh, on the checkout says, can I have a checkout call or price check please for, you know, and then that delays you even more. I get wound up by that. It's bad. It's not good. I'm not saying that's a good thing. It's a bad thing. I'm impatient. In everyday circumstances. Never mind in difficulty and in suffering. And if we don't do patience very well in the mundane things, how are we going to be patient when suffering comes our way? This is what James is calling us to. Well, James says, if you want to learn what it's like to be a patient Christian, look to the patient farmer for your example. Look at the rest of verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. Farming takes patience, doesn't it? I mean, what would you say to a farmer who goes out one day, uh, plants his seed in the ground, uh, come back the next day and says, nothing's grown. What a waste of time. I'm giving this up. You would say, well, that's foolish. Just wait. Just wait. Some these things take time. And the picture we have of the farmer in uh, James 5 here is a farmer who knows that there are times and there are seasons. 
He knows he can't rush things. He has to wait patiently for autumn rains to soften the ground so that he can plant his seed. He has to wait for the spring rains to come that give his crop that final burst of growth to make it ready for the harvest. The picture is not one of panic or of giving up. The picture is one of patience and waiting. And in the same way, we too are called to be patient, appreciating there are times and seasons in our lives when things may seem dry and difficult. When the ground of our hearts might be hard, we are to imitate the farmer and his patience, knowing that there will be times of great refreshing and in particular, a great crop to enjoy. Did you see the way James describes the crop? Valuable. In other words, when you harvest, when that harvest comes, don't miss this. It'll be worth the wait. It'll be worth the wait. The harvest that we will reap is eternal life with our Lord Jesus Christ, with him forever. Where our struggle with sin is gone, where our struggle with suffering, the impairments that we feel every day in our bodies the struggles that we experience, the pain that we experience emotionally in our hearts every day because of losses we have experienced or because of anxieties about the future will be gone. James says the wait is almost over. The Lord's coming is near. Look at verse 8. You too be patient like the farmer. Stand firm then because the Lord's coming is near. The word For stand firm in there is strengthen your hearts. Establish your hearts by this. Be steadfast. Don't be moved by this. Be strong in your heart, in your struggle against sin, in your struggle against suffering. Remember this. Remember what we are moving towards, the value of the crop that we are moving towards that will either be initiated by our death or by the Lord's coming. It will be worth it. And these are the things that we should be talking about with one another in our church family as we seek to comfort and counsel one another with these amazing truths. It's not just our very presence or or solidarity with one another's suffering that brings us comfort. It's reminding each other, be patient, he's coming back. There is a valuable crop to be harvested. Be patient, brother. Be patient, sister. What a difference that can make to our lives today when we remind each other of that glorious day to come. Yet there's a problem that James identifies. He seems to be suggesting that we have a tendency not to encourage one another to look forward to the return of Christ, but in our suffering to be so swamped and so overwhelmed that we begin to grumble against one another seemingly forgetful of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 says, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. Now, grumbling is one of the signs that you might not have a heart that is waiting patiently for the return of Jesus. And Jesus has said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, what your mouth says shows what's really going on in your heart. So what does a grumbling mouth say about your heart? And you might be objecting, saying, Liam, are you for real? Do you realize the kind of thing that I'm going through here? Well, I think James certainly appreciates what the people here 
that he's writing to, what they're going through. And I think he's finding out really that it's quite easy, as we know, to lash out at people when we feel under pressure. I understand that, again, even in the more mundane sense. I have a a tendency, sadly, to take out my frustrations and my anxieties on those I love the most, on those who are closest to me. Even though they're not the source of my trials or difficulties. Why is grumbling so bad? Why does James throw in this warning here, even about judgment, he's saying? Because grumbling does often seem like a little thing, but grumbling is in itself a pollutant, really. In the waters of our hearts and in the waters of our churches, it brings death. It's David Powlison who has said, Grumbling is the background drone of a discontented heart that has forgotten that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And here James is trying to highlight for us. Remember, all the way through, James has tried to pick up for us a double-mindedness. Oh, you say you believe this, but you act like that. And again, he's saying the same. You say you are being patient, but by your grumbling, it's maybe showing up that there's a sinful tendency in your heart that you maybe need to confess, you maybe need to think through, and maybe to help you refocus on the Lord's coming. You see, James is eager for the body of Christ, the people of God together in local churches, to be encouraging one another. Not grumbling against one another. Many of us know what it's like to be in the pit of our despair, in grief or in sadness or in trial. We've sat by your bedsides. We've visited you in your difficulty and in your grief. What do we try to do? To love you. What is the most loving thing to do? Lift your head and see your saviour, Jesus Christ. And the promise of his return. To lift your head. To behold him and see him coming in glory with his reward with him. So let's encourage one another and, and get on with lifting up one another's heads. Not to fall into the trap of grumbling against one another even by our in our suffering. And the alarm is in there. So it's a good reminder for us. Jesus is coming to judge. The judge stands at the door. Verse 9. Maybe you're here today. You're not a Christian. I wonder how all this sounds to you. I wonder how you have coped in the past with uh, suffering. Or maybe if you haven't experienced anything particularly testing or a trial of of any considerable depth at this time, again, I'm not being pessimistic, but realistic, you probably will. What will help you in that time? What will serve you well in that time? Has anyone ever told you about the fact that Jesus Christ, who walked this earth 2,000 years ago, came down to proclaim that you, people who are far away from God and alienated from him because of your sin, can be brought near to him by believing in Jesus, by trusting in his death on the cross, And his resurrection from the dead, knowing that he is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven and is one day coming back. Has anyone ever told you that? Has anyone ever explained the significance of not believing that? 
Because I think that's what James is throwing up for us here, and it's a helpful reminder for us, that Jesus is coming to judge. I think in the first instance, James is talking about here, look, these, these people that James is addressing, they're being persecuted, they're being crushed, there are some desperately wicked people, like those in Psalm 37 that we read earlier on, who are crushing the believers there, people who are just making the believers not know what to say, not know what to think. Well, I'm trying to follow after you, Lord, but here are these people who are, who are crushing us here and being really dreadful towards us, even to the point of taking life, taking livelihood. What James' encouragement, in some sense, is, look, you don't need to retaliate. Jesus Christ is coming and he will right all the wrongs. The question that should be asked of those who don't believe is, have you heard about this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Has anyone told you about the judgment? It would be irresponsible of us to withhold something from you. Even thinking, just in case it might be offensive to you. We like to live our lives in this city and in our society thinking that we're pretty autonomous. We're makers of our own destinies, rulers of our own lives. But James, end of James 4 and into chapter 5 has already said, look, we're not in control. God's in control. And actually, we're not autonomous. We're not in control of our lives. We're answerable to the one who made us. And he made us, whether we acknowledge that or not. The day of the Lord is the day the Lord returns is described in the Bible without apology as being a dreadful and a terrible day. It's described as being a day where people would rather have mountains fall on them than face God's judgment. But for those who trust in Jesus and who believe in him and have their sins forgiven by him, because that's what bars us from him, it will be a day of salvation. And the Bible speaks without apology of great glory and with words cannot describe the reward, the joy of being in his presence. Which of these descriptions will you face? Don't delay don't delay in deciding upon this. Would be my encouragement for you every day. Everybody in our, so many people in our city assume that tomorrow will be another day just like today. But the Bible has promised that actually there is a day that's coming. One of these tomorrows is going to be very, very different. And by then it will have been too late. Have you believed in Jesus? Have you confessed your sin and trusted in him so that this day of the Lord will not be a day of judgment for you, but a day of salvation? For those of you who have made that choice and who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you telling other people? Are you telling other people so that they will not face a day of judgment, but by the Lord's grace, a day of salvation? Open up your mouths. Don't speak. Don't let your inhibitions hinder you. My goodness, look at what is coming. Open up your mouths and share this glorious gospel. We have a cure for their ills. We have a healing for that day. So James' encouragement for all who are struggling with suffering in the first instance is be patient. Wait without grumbling. 
He's coming to judge. Then the second thing we're going to look at, number two, the second thing James calls for is perseverance. James here picks up again on this call for those who are Christians and suffering under severe trial to, trial to stand firm, uh, to be strong in heart by providing two more examples. Uh, not only are they to be patient like the farmer, they're to persevere like the prophets and, and like Job in verses 10 and 11. Stand firm then like the prophets. Verses 10 and into the start of 11 says, Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider, those, we consider blessed those who have persevered. The prophets were, of course, those who were chosen to, by God in the Old Testament to act as mouthpieces for God. They were like megaphones in the hands of God. All they were to do is to share God's message. Everything he gave them to say, they were to say. And that's why James is saying that they spoke in the name of the Lord. They were his representatives. They were his ambassadors, if you like, speaking on his behalf. And that indeed was a real privilege for them. But even a cursory flick through a testimony of their lives in the Bible, it isn't hard to see that they weren't that popular. I mean, they weren't gathering huge crowds to... Uh, to, who would listen to their, to their sermons and their messages, by and large, they faced some significant hardship. Even taking Jeremiah, for example, God had said to Jeremiah from the beginning, listen, I, I've set you apart to be my servant. I, w- I want you to go around preaching the very message of salvation that I have for you to preach. But listen, no one is going to listen to you. In fact, they're going to make your life a misery. They're going to make things really, really seriously hard for you. And that's exactly what happened. Now, you would have thought that that would have made Jeremiah feel pretty depressed, wouldn't you? Well, it did. It did. He was regularly gutted. And he has a very honest testimony, regularly, of his prayers before the Lord. And even he wrote the book of Lamentations. Says it all. But still... What did, what did Jeremiah do? What did many of the other prophets do? They press on in service of the Lord. Jeremiah said in chapter 20, verses 8 and following, The word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering, Terror on every side. Report him. Let's report him. And all my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps he'll be deceived. Then we'll prevail over him and we'll take our revenge on him. But, says Jeremiah, the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. The Lord brings his protection on those who stand firm. Now, to some, I expect this thought of facing difficulty for believing in Jesus is, is a problem. It's almost surprising. Because whatever we, say about, we, whatever we say we believe about following Jesus and being willing to suffer for him, we almost have this false expectation that because I do this for Jesus and because I do that for Jesus, well, he will stop any kind of harm from coming near me. But that's just not true. Following Jesus doesn't give us immunity from suffering. 
Indeed, in some cases, it plunges you right into the thick of it. Think about the persecuted church that we were remembering in prayer earlier. No, Jesus, following Jesus does not give you immunity from suffering. It gives you hope in suffering. It gives you confident assurance in suffering. And what encouragement we find as we read about these men of faith and say with James in verse 11, as you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. Blessed. They're the heroes And the thousands of Christians like them who have reached the end of their lives having remained faithful. They know the reward of heaven, of perfect rest in the presence of God himself. The temptation that we face in our suffering and our trial as Christians is to stop speaking. To stop serving. But that's not what we're to do. We're to stand firm, be strong in heart and keep going. Stand firm like the prophets did. Stand firm like Job did. Verse 11 continues, You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Have you heard of Job before? Job was a man who experienced the kind of suffering I think that we all dread. He lost his entire livelihood to thieves and every one of his sons and daughters to natural disaster. Not unlike Spafford who wrote that great song, It Is Well. Well, the description of Job's misery in the Bible, in the book of Job, is pretty graphic. In chapter 6 it tells us he lost, that food had lost its taste, he couldn't sleep because of the way his sufferings had seized him. Verse uh, chapter 16, he tells us that his face was red with weeping. And what was especially painful for him was the memory of what his life had been like before he had lost everything, even his family. And at times, Job even confessed. He felt like God was after him. He felt, he said in chapter 16, verse 9, in his anger, he has torn me and bears a grudge against me. Now that wasn't true, but that's how Job felt. Job didn't curse God like his wife told him to. Remember at the beginning after this calamity had all fallen on them? He's sitting there and he's saying great words of great testimony of faith really. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, he said. His wife was saying, what are you doing? Curse God and die. But he didn't. Although he did do something close to that. I mean, he didn't curse God, but he did curse the day of his birth, which is in effect a way of saying, well, I should never have been born. Such was his suffering. He was skirting on the edge of denouncing God, but he didn't. And he was enabled with great faith to say some great things, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. It almost seems inhuman. How can you say that? Given the loss that you've experienced. Well, only by God's grace, really. How can Spafford write a song like When Peace Like a River? Only by God's grace. By the strengthening of the Spirit who enables them. Who enables us. I'm glad that Job is in the Bible, you know. I'm so glad 
that God in his purposes put Job in there for us to read. If Job had handled everything perfectly, you know, (laughs) it would have been hard to relate to him, wouldn't it? It really would have been hard to relate to him. It would have been hard to relate. Instead, though, we sympathize with his loss, appreciate his questions, and hopefully, here's the thing that James is wanting us to see, to learn from his perseverance. James mentions Job to help people who are in the midst of a whirlwind of suffering, to help them see that their present situation is not the end of the story. And that's what helps them keep going. That's what helps them stand firm. That's what helps them keep going. Have you read how the book of Job ends? The book doesn't end with God questioning the appropriateness of some of Job's comments or musings. The the book doesn't end with Job's faithful, God-honoring reply to God's questioning of him, though that's significant. Remember Job 42, verse 5, it says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Now that's figurative language. In other words, before I suffered like this, I thought I actually knew you. I had heard of you. But now that I have come through all of this, even in the midst of my suffering, now my eyes have seen you. In other words, he grew. He grew in his knowledge and his understanding of God and his purposes, even through his suffering. Now through this suffering, I really know you. God is at work. In our suffering. But that's not even how the book ends. The book ends with the restoration of Job. This is what James picks up on. Job Job 42, uh, 12 says, The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. So the size of his family was restored. The flocks and herd were twice as big than previously. And again, it is a picture of God's full restoration to Job's complete satisfaction. That this was the end that God had in mind from the beginning. The faithfulness of a man whose integrity was questioned even by the devil himself. Yet Job stood firm, remained faithful, persevered to the end. What's the temptation that we face in our suffering? Is it not to lose sight of God's purposes in and through our suffering? James says, you have heard of the Job's perseverance and, what, uh, and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Greek word in there is telos, goal, end. You've seen the Lord's end. You've seen the Lord's purpose. In Job, we see the Lord's goal to refine us even through our suffering. Even as he promises that the end is to come, there will be a complete restoration when he returns. When he returns, we will find full satisfaction in his presence. Now, you may feel lost in your circumstances. You may feel presently that God is not near. You may not be able to figure out why you've been chosen to go through this difficult time. But the Bible tells us us that you are not, you are not the victim of impersonal forces. And blind chance. Someone is in charge of what's happening in your life. And Job's God is our God. This means that as earth shaking as these times of suffering are. Your world is not ending. And you will not be lost to your circumstances. Jesus is coming back. 
And even if you die before then, death has lost its sting. It only serves as a butler showing you in the, to the glories of the place that Jesus Christ himself has prepared for you. As Spurgeon says, stingless death remains among the people of God. It is not death to die. Death has no power over us. God is not about to lose any of us along the way. If God has written your story and is working out his plan, then even, Job says, even your dark moments and difficult times have purpose. Though these moments are moments that you would never have chosen for yourself, God is at work in and through them, and he will not let you go. And the aim of all of our perseverance is that Christ be seen and glorified in us as we sing songs like it is well with my soul. It is to his glory that he returns. He is coming with compassion. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. With a heart full of love, he is going to bring you comfort. With a heart full of love, he's bringing you mercy. Even in our suffering, even when we sin in our suffering, he's coming with mercy, he's coming with forgiveness. If you're here today again, you're not a Christian, can I encourage you to see how patient God is with you. He could come back today. But how patient he is in giving you another day, another opportunity, another chance to repent, to turn from your sin and turn to him. Another day to acknowledge, I'm not the Lord of my life, you're the Lord of my life. And if we are believers, how big is his heart? How great is his love? How great is his care for our situation? If God, who is infinite in all of his attributes, is coming with compassion and mercy towards us, how infinite is that compassion and how infinite is that mercy? It's endless. Endless. The way of suffering, never forget, the way of suffering was the way of our Lord Jesus Christ, remember. Hebrews tells us at present we do not see everything subject to him. That will happen when he comes back. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's why for the Christian it is not death to die. He's tasted death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect. Through what? Suffering. He has suffered like we have. In fact, he has suffered something that is far more crushing than we will ever 
know if we trust in Jesus Christ. He has bore the wrath of the Father against all sin. And he is our Lord who brings comfort and compassion to all who suffer. So my encouragement for you today is to look to him. Let's have the next slide up, please. Let the coming of Jesus encourage you then today to be patient and steadfast in your suffering as you wait for him. And hear these words from Hebrews 10. Do not throw away your confidence. Your confidence in him and your confidence in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, it, I will not be pleased with him. So the Lord is saying, if you do not persevere, if you shrink back from this, you will not be pleased. But Hebrews 10 doesn't end there. Verse 39 says, but... We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. In other words, faithless. But of those who believe and are saved. Saved. Secure. Comforted. In heaven. In his presence. Incredible. Let's pray together.